right, if you have your Bible, find your way to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where our text will be this morning. Uh, we are continuing in our series entitled All In. Uh, we're taking a few weeks and looking at uh, what the Bible teaches about a life that's fully devoted, that's all in to Jesus. And, uh, you know, I've been so blessed by the encouragement and feedback that so many of you have given me over these last few weeks, and it's a shame that that has to end this morning. Um, as I... Uh, I address a topic that uh, pastors aren't supposed to go to, but yet uh, the Word of God speaks to uh, very clearly and often to the issue of generosity. And I want you to see this morning how the Bible teaches that people who are all in are generous. Or, or maybe I'll add to what Pastor Terry said a moment ago last week when we said that first the gospel, before it moves you to action, captures your affection. But once it captures your affection, it moves you to action. And that's what we're going to see here in a church uh, that Paul addresses uh, to the Corinthian church here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you are nice and comfortable, get over it and stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, we want the weekly reminder that the Word of God comes to us with the authority of God. And I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 1 through 9. We'll read down just to verse 9. Word of God says, but we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that he had started and so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Pray with me. Father, thank You so much for this privilege to be able to worship together. I thank You for Your Word, how it instructs us, it, it gives us truth. Um, so help us this morning receive that truth, and may Your Spirit guide us into truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Every night, Julio Diaz would leave work. He would get on his one-hour subway ride home to his neighborhood in the Bronx, making sure that every single time he stopped at his favorite diner. This was his normal routine. He did it every single night. And then one evening, that normal routine took a very sudden, scary twist. Julio got off the number six train to what seemed to be an empty platform only to be approached by a teenage boy with a knife demanding his wallet. 
Julio, not wanting things to escalate any further than they already had, gave the young boy his wallet. And as the robber turned to walk away, Julio shouted out, Wait! If you're going to be out robbing people tonight, why don't you take my jacket as well so you can stay warm? The robber looked kind of puzzled. He turned and looked back at Julio, and there was Julio standing, holding out his jacket. He said, why are you doing this? And Julio said, well, I figure if you're willing to risk your freedom for a few dollars, you must really need the money. Now, I was about to go get something to eat, and if you'd like, you could join me. And much to Julio's amazement, the robber said yes. And so you can imagine the scene as they walk into Julio's favorite diner and, and as they had conversation, the, the, the teenage boy, the robber, said, why is it that you're nice to everybody? I mean, you're nice to the waitress. You're nice to the guy back there washing dishes. Everybody in this place knows you. And Julio said, well, haven't you been taught to be nice to people? And the teenage boy said, yeah, but I've never seen anybody behave that way. They talked a little, little while longer, then finally the bill came, and Julio said, man, I would love to treat you to dinner. <laughs> you already know where I'm going. But he said, you've got my wallet. But if you'd give it back, I'd be happy to pay the bill. And the teenage boy handed Julio his wallet along with the knife. Now Julio went home that night and he told his mom what happened. And she said, son, that's just like you. It's just like you. You're the kind of person that if somebody asked you for the time, you'd give them your watch. Now that's a true story. And I thought, what an amazing story. But what stuck out to me was that last line from Julio's mom. You're the kind of person that if somebody asked you for the time, you'd give them your watch. And it made me wonder if our lives would be described that way. Are we the kind of people who are seen as generous people? That we love to give. We love to bless others because that's exactly the kind of person, that's the, exactly the kind of church that the Apostle Paul is writing to these Corinthians and describing. And Brian, listen this morning. What, what Paul does here is he talks about a life, and I'll show this in the text in just a moment, a life that's all in to Jesus is radically generous. The life whose affections have been captured by the gospel are led to just crazy actions that make people scratch their head and say, why would you do that? Now let me tell you the context that's going on as to why Paul addresses this issue of generosity to the Corinthians. In 46 AD, Jerusalem faced a major drought. Now, now follow me here. All the surrounding area has faced extremely difficult times. It's bad. It's really, really bad. 
And if matters weren't bad enough, the Roman government added to the people double taxation. So now they're, they're dealing with the lingering effects of drought. They're being taxed doubly. And on top of that, Christians in those days, as we've talked about, were very much persecuted. So they were marginalized in society. People outside the church showed no mercy to Christians. They didn't think they deserved any. So the Apostle Paul hears of this. He knows the situation that's taking place in Jerusalem. And he calls a time out on his plans. And he tries to gather a collection from Gentile churches to help believers in Jerusalem during their difficult time. Now, the Corinthian church had promised to participate. They had promised to give, but something came up. And they haven't followed through on that promise. They've not been giving and and showing generosity. And so Paul writes to them and he addresses this issue in their life. And, And what he does first is he points them to another church. The church in Macedonia. Look at verse 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given among the churches in Macedonia. If you know your Bible, that's the Philippians, the Philippian church. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, for their own accord. I love verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So here's what Paul's saying. Our, Our Corinthians, listen, I want you to look over here at an example an example of the Macedonians, and here's the situation they're in. They're in extreme poverty. I mean extreme. They have nothing. They are every your mama so poor joke that you could imagine. I mean, they are broke, broke, broke. It is severe. I know times have not been great in Corinth, but it's nothing like what's happening in Macedonia. And yet, how did those Christians respond in their poverty? They could have easily said, well, we we can't give generously because something's come up. But what does Paul say? They had a wealth of generosity, verse 2. They gave beyond their means, verse 3. Verse 4, they're begging, please, 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 can we give more? But you don't have anything. It's all right, can we give more? And they did all this in a way that you don't find in a lot of churches, verse 2, with joy. Their idea of a good time was when they had nothing, giving more. And you say, well, how in the world do people who have nothing give? Here's how it worked in those days. Let's say you got a dad, and he's a baker. And he bakes bread for his family to eat that day. Instead of his family eating that day, he sells the bread, gives the money from selling the bread to the mission of God. And that day, his family doesn't eat. It's a dad who goes to the lake, who catches a fish to cook that for a meal for his family. But instead of giving them a meal, he sells the fish, gives that to the mission of God, and that day his family doesn't eat. That's how they gave. They ate what they had to to stay alive and everything else they gave away. And they did it with joy. Now that's just crazy. Can we admit that? 
Like, who does that? that? That's insane. But imagine being known in the community. Imagine being a church that was known for its radical generosity. You know, churches are known for a lot of things. You know, it's preaching, it's music, it's programming, it's state-of-the-art facilities. But the Macedonian church was known for their radical, crazy, what-in-the-world-are-you-thinking generosity. Why? What would lead a church, what would lead a person to give like this? And verse 5 answers that question. Paul says, and this, not as we expected, underline this, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. Translation, they were all in. They gave themselves to Jesus. They were fully devoted to Jesus. And because they had given themselves completely to Him, they started seeing things in their life very differently. In fact, what shaped their perspective of their life, and this is huge, Brian, what shaped their perspective was not the economy of finances, but the economy of grace. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by His poverty might, you might become rich. So, what is the Gospel? The Gospel is this. Jesus is pretty rich. Amen? I mean, He like has everything. He is God. And He was in the riches and the glories of heaven. And you know what He did? He came to earth. And He became a man. He took on poverty. He had no place to lay His head. Why did He do that? So that He would die on the cross for our sins and be rose on the third day so that those of us who are in the most extreme poverty, namely our sin, would be given the riches and glory of heaven. That's the Gospel. Jesus was rich. He became poor so that you and your poverty could be rich. Whoa, 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 what's the point? Paul's point is the Macedonians so got that that it changed the way they viewed their life in this world. It was no longer about the American economy or the Corinthian economy or the Macedonian economy. It was God's economy. And listen, when you're rich in grace, there's no such thing as poor. Amen? Say, preach it, preacher. I mean, that's good. Come on. That needed something, you know? I mean, come on. When you've been given the great riches of God's grace, you're not poor, no matter what you have in your bank account. And the Macedonians got that, and they got it so deeply that that's why they were so excited, even though they didn't have anything to give. Now, I told you a few weeks ago, my, my middle daughter, Audrey, she's five. She's the dessert queen in our home. I mean, anything sweet, she loves it. And it's a pretty common thing sometimes if I take her out for ice cream or dessert that she's eating away and I'll say, can I have a bite or can I have a lick? And she'll look at me and she'll say, no. <laughs> Which usually follows, parents, are you tracking with me here? It usually follows with, it's mine. To which I remind her, well, when you're 16, you're going to do a lot of walking. <laughs> but we all know that there's something wrong 
With someone who's been given so much, we provide for her. She has so much that we have given her. And then we give her extra, like ice cream, and she clings to it. Which only reminds me that sometimes I have the financial wisdom of a five-year-old girl. I'm rich. And that doesn't have anything to do with what's in my wallet. It's what's in my spiritual account, namely the very righteousness of God. Now, some of you are new here. Some of you are just getting involved here and you're thinking, yep, two months, two months, the new pastor had to talk about money. I thought it'd be sooner, but you know, two months, I get it. I got just... I've got to tell you my heart here, and, and I'm hoping that you'll trust me. I haven't mentioned one time tithing. This doesn't have anything to do with raise the roof. That does not motivate me at all. This doesn't have anything to do about trying to get out of debt. I mean, all those things are good, and we have to talk about those things from time to time as a faith family. But do you know what this is really about? This is really about that I have been called to preach the Word of God to you that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And your generosity and my generosity has everything to do with whether or not we are imaging Jesus to the world. You say, well, I want to find a church where they don't talk about giving. Okay, well, you're probably going to have to settle for a church that doesn't want you to be like Jesus. For though he was rich, he became poor. Paul doesn't have to beg. And I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to beg you. I'm not trying to beat you over the head with the Bible. Look at what Paul says in verse 8. I say this not as a command. In other words, I'm not trying to twist your arm. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not sending Sally Struthers, you know, with, with her little... Remember Sally Struthers with the big 80s bouffant hair? You know, here are pictures of kids in Jerusalem. Feel sorry and feel guilty and call this number and give. For Paul, it's simple. If you've received the unbelievable generosity of God's grace, you're generous. Which means there's a direct connection not between how a pastor makes you feel guilty, but how much you understand the Gospel and your generosity. That's what it's about. Because generosity doesn't come from being commanded to give. Generosity comes through being consumed by grace. If you give because you feel like you have to, or just because I'm preaching on it, that's the wrong motivation. The right motivation is, I am so amazed at God's grace in my life. I want to be gracious to the lives of others. That, does it get any more simple than that? Biblical generosity is not guilt-driven, it's gospel-driven. Because when you look at the cross, it's very hard to be selfish. When you look at the cross, it's very hard to be selfish. Tim Keller, uh, in his book, Prodigal God, if you've never read that, you should read that. It's a great book. And he talks about that there was a lady in his church that came from a very moralistic and legalistic background. And, and she struggled with the whole, like, I've got to keep the rules, I've got to do the commands, and, 
And as she said under gospel preaching about grace and forgiveness and free grace, she began to connect some dots and she came to, to Pastor Keller one day and she said, I made a discovery. He said, really, what's that? He, she said, uh, this grace thing is scary. And he said, what do you mean? She goes, oh, don't, don't misunderstand me. It's a good scary, but it's scary. And he was still confused, and so he said, well, what do you mean this grace thing is scary? And listen to what she told him. She said, if I'm saved by my works, then there's a limit to what God would ask me to do. But if I've been saved by grace, there's nothing He can't ask of me. Yes and amen. When we understand the gospel of grace, it changes our whole way of thinking to the point, here's, this is crazy, like we might actually be a church that when the pastor's preaching on giving and generosity, we love it. Okay, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not so much. <laughs> I am so sorry I even said that out loud. But I bet if I were preaching in Macedonia, they would. Because they got the gospel. And when you get the gospel, it changes how you view your life. And let me just show you a couple things that the gospel does in terms of transforming the way you think about this whole thing. I'll give you just four. You might jot them down. Just I'll, I'll hit these very quickly. Is Here's what I want to say. Gospel-driven generosity versus guilt-driven. You know, you've all been in that church context where it's guilt-driven. Let's go Old Testament and thus saith the Lord commands. And, and, and That's not what I'm about. What I'm about is gospel. And, and how does the gospel change our way of thinking? To where it's not guilt-driven, it's gospel-driven. Here's the first thing is when we're driven by the gospel to be generous, we won't be reluctant. We won't be reluctant. Now, look what Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 8. He says, In this manner I give my judgment. This benefits you, uh, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it might be matched by your completing it out of what you have. And he actually goes on to say, I'm not trying to be a burden, so this isn't some type of a burden thing or you don't get to enjoy life or you don't get to enjoy things. It's not what Paul's about. Read the rest of the chapter. He's just simply saying, you've made a promise to be generous, but you've been reluctant to follow through with that. Something came up. But listen, Brian, something will always come up. Because your enemy, who hates your guts, doesn't want you to experience the blessing of God. The last thing in the world your enemy wants is you to be generous. He don't want you to get the gospel to the point that it starts changing things in your life. That would be an offense to him. So he's going to try to keep it to where there's always something coming up. But you know what? That doesn't work in really any other area of our lives. For those of you who are parents, you set a curfew for your kids. Let's just say midnight. Uh, the curfew for my children, my oldest is right here on the front row, will be 6, 6 p.m., right? Is when they'll have to be home. He's already hating me on that. But let's say it's midnight and they come home at 2 in the morning and they look at you and say, well, but I meant to be home on time. Does that work for you? Or we're kind of in the middle of tax season. What if the IRS comes calling and you say, well, but I meant to file my taxes. But just something came up. It doesn't work, does it? 
When you're driven by the Gospel, you're driven not to be reluctant and hesitant. You're driven to be faithful. And why is that? Because at the core of the Gospel is not Jesus saying, I wanted to die for you, but there was that whole cross thing. I wanted to forgive you of all of your sins, but something came up. No, what we see in the Gospel is our Savior who is faithful to the end. That's what Gospel-driven generosity does. Here's the second thing. Gospel-driven generosity is not conditional. It's not conditional. Now, now come into the context here. Get this. This is, man, I'm having a blast up here. I don't know about you, but this is fun. At least for once. Paul's writing to who? The Corinthians. Well, who are they? They're Gentile Christians. And what does he want them to give to? Suffering Jews who are Christians in Jerusalem. Okay, what does that mean? Well, Jews used to think that Gentiles didn't belong in the people of God. So imagine how Gentiles feel when Paul says, I want you to give to help the very people who used to say you don't belong. Not so fast. And why is that? Because generosity is not about your mission, it's about God's mission. Generosity is not about your preference. Well, as long as the pastor makes me happy, right? As soon as he starts making me upset, I'm going to stop giving. Or as long as I can get my name on something, or as long as I like that particular need, that's not generosity. Generosity does not come with conditions because Jesus did not go to the cross with conditions. He died unconditionally for you. Jesus didn't die for a special interest group. That's not His kind of generosity. Gospel-driven generosity also moves us to give in a way that's not sparingly. Look at verse 6 of chapter 9. Just a couple more verses and we'll, we'll wind it up. Verse uh, 6 of chapter 9 says, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, how many of you show of hands plant things? flowers, tomatoes, you know that one week out of the year here that you can actually plant stuff? I'm learning. Two months, I get it. Now, I grew up in Tennessee, we planted things, most of which are illegal, and we won't talk about that. Not my family, other families. But I know just a little bit, just a basic understanding of the whole idea of seed and sowing. And so, think about this imagery, right? You got all this seed, and if you know just a basic knowledge of seed, you know this. It doesn't make a lot of sense to hear a farmer boast about how much seed he has. Man, it's so awesome. I got barns back here. They're, what are they full of? They're full of seed. That doesn't make any sense at all. Because a good farmer knows that a seed is only means to an end. The goal is not the seed... The goal is what you can do with that seed. Your money is not the end. 
Your money is a means to an end of planting a great harvest of blessing in the lives of others. And what Paul says is if you're the kind of person that's like, eh, I'll sow a little bit, then you'll reap a little bit. But if you're crazy generous and you sow, no, I won't do that. <laughs> you sow not sparingly, but bountifully Imagine the blessing your life will be on others. That's the end of a life that's all in. Jesus came to give you life. And the phrase that comes after that is not life sparingly, but life abundantly. That's the Gospel. Here's the last one. Gospel-driven generosity is not grudgingly. Verse 7 says this, Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, and you should underline this, for God loves a cheerful giver. Translation, God loves people who love sermons about giving. (laughs) Maybe that's my translation of that, but... God loves a cheerful giver. Let me ask you this, uh, wives, husbands. Would you be honored if um, your spouse came to you and it was your anniversary and said, here's a gift? Oh, really? Great. Why? Because it's our anniversary. Oh, sweetheart, it's Valentine's Day. I got you flowers. Oh, that's so nice. Why did you get this? Because it's Valentine's Day. Would you be honored by that? Do you think God is honored when we say, okay, 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 I'll give. Pass the plate. Bible says so. That's not honoring. Because gospel-centered generosity isn't driven by keeping rules. It's driven by grace. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. The last time I checked, when Jesus looked at dying for your sins, He didn't say, I guess so. He said, what a privilege. I'm all in. And that's the motivation of our generosity. Do you see how the Gospel changes the way we think about this? Man, this is so, and I'm hoping that those of you that are maybe new here, like you're seeing, this is a totally different approach to this issue than the way a lot of people address it in church. It's about the gospel, not guilt. It's about grace, not rules. Because that's what God's about. Now, if you do this, and I'm going to end with this, if you were to actually apply this, this kind of generosity, and it's going to look different for you and different for you and different for you. But when we start living the kind of life that if people ask us for the time, we give them their watch, there's three things that are going to happen, and I'm going to do these real quick. It's about up, out, and in. I want you to say that with me. Up, out, and in. One more time. Up, out, and in. Like we're doing an exercise class. Up, out, in, right? Here's what it's about. Up, out and in. And Paul addresses this. You can read this in verses 11 through the end of chapter 9. But here's what Paul says is going to happen when you start doing this. Look right here. First of all, it's going to be up. Meaning God's going to be praised and glorified. 
Because what you're doing is you're saying, God, you're so gracious. You're so amazing. You've given to me so much. I love you. And just as a way of showing that, I want to be generous. And God is praised. And you give to others, and you know what they do? They just praise God. Thank you for meeting my needs. You use the Macedonian church to meet the needs here in Jerusalem. God be praised. And man, it just goes up, 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 up to the throne of God. It also goes out. Why is Paul bringing up the Macedonians to the Corinthian church? Because the generosity of the Macedonians is to be contagious to the Corinthians. The, res- the intended response of this is for the Corinthians to say, Wow, that's awesome. Look at that church and the way they're giving. I want to do that too. Like, that's so amazing that they would give that way and sacrifice that way. Can I join in? And so when you start living generously, it begins to encourage others around you in that generosity. So you got up, you got out, and you got in. Now, it's been said before, but listen, particularly if you're new to church, this type of a message isn't to get anything from you. It's to get something for you. Look at what, just verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. I know you don't believe that. I know some of you think this is just a facade. But I'm telling you the Word of God says that when you start giving generously, man, it brings about a joy that you cannot explain. I like what Steve Gooder says here. He says, let me offer a word of caution. If you choose to give from your heart, be careful. The most incredible feeling might just overwhelm you. And if you continue in this behavior, it might just become permanent. This kind of generosity goes up, it goes out, and it goes in. So here's what I want you to do. I'm landing the plane. We're about to walk out of here in a few moments. What's the takeaway? The takeaway is this. Here's the simple thing. This week, do something crazy. Just do something crazy. And I don't know what, you know, that may look like $5. I don't know what that looks like for you. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying, do something that in your life just is, it's just generous. It's totally other-centered. And for those of you that are skeptical of the whole church thing, don't even do it here. I'm fine with that. I'm totally fine. If it doesn't have anything to do with Berean, That's fine. Just be generous out there. Live a life of generosity. Two is make generosity a part of your lifestyle. So don't just like respond to the sermon, but think about how do I cultivate this into my life. And then lastly, and this is probably most importantly right here, right here, is before you give anything to anybody, give yourself first to Jesus. Because I really, I'm not concerned really about the action. I am concerned ultimately about the affection. The action will come. Give yourself, like the Macedonian church, first to the Lord. So I ask you, is your life marked with generosity? Is it? And if it's not, I would ask all of us to consider the example of a very generous man. No, 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 no. Not, not the guy who was held up by a knife the man who was held up by nails. Not the man who got assaulted in a subway, but the man who was crucified at Calvary for your sins. Consider him. Because he's the kind of man that if you ask him for life, he'll give it to you abundantly. Let's pray.
Lord, I pray that you would teach us. Oh, there's so much for us to learn. I pray that this word has penetrated our heart. I pray that it's causing us to think. I pray, God, that ultimately we are giving ourselves to you first. That we are being, we are having the gospel inform the way we think and live. And uh, Lord, I know that's difficult. I, I don't think for a moment that generosity doesn't come with a cost. In fact, if anything, the cross shows us that very thing. So help us think about uh, this word, and now as we come to a point where we're going to give, where we will take up an offering, not motivated by guilt, but motivated by gospel. Be honored by it, and may people be blessed through it. In Christ's name, amen.